After two weeks off, we are back in John chapter 19. Now, it is easy to read through this passage and get the basics of what John wants us to know, but there's more here than what at first read seems like simple plot points. Personally, I think the Bible should be approached as Jewish meditation literature. That is, it's written from the Jewish worldview and perspective, and as a particular kind of literature, it's intended to be molded over and read in light of everything that has come before it. You're, you're supposed to make connections with other texts, particularly in the Old Testament. So while a basic reading of this text is a good one, I think there's more to John's account of the crucifixion than what a casual or basic reading allows. Well, again, we are in John chapter 19. We're going to pick it up with verse 17. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. But Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray simply that with this time we have together that you would use this word about your Son to build us up in faith and hope and love that we might follow you with everything we've got and that we might come to see just how much you love us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you go back and start in chapter 18, if you remember, we read that Jesus was bound and handed over from group to group. So from Judas and the officers at Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane to his interrogation with Annas uh, to his sham trial before Caiaphas, the high priest, and the Sanhedrin to Pilate, and then in turn to the Roman soldiers who were most likely Samaritans who tortured Jesus, back again to Pilate, and now finally to the leaders of Israel again for his crucifixion. So from an outside perspective, it appears as though Jesus is passive in all of this, that he is being passed around from group to group with little to no agency. But he's not passive or powerless. He's chosen to submit to the will of his Father and in turn to the authorities put in place by him. And though both his disciples and his enemies can't see it, this is all according to what God had planned and promised going all the way back to the promise made to Eve. Now, as we saw with Jesus' interactions with Annas and Caiaphas and Pilate, uh, Jesus was not on the defensive. He was not on his, his heels. No, he was, well, really, he was the interrogator and the judge, not the people trying to accuse him. So we read that Jesus carried his own cross. This was most likely the cross beam of the cross, and this was a usual part of the crucifixion process. It was intended to shame and humiliate the man being crucified. John's account, however, diverges from the other gospel accounts because 
he only says that Jesus carried his cross. Now, other gospel accounts mention that Simon of Cyrene was forced to carry the cross being part of the way for him. So it's worth asking, why the discrepancy? Well, the other accounts give a fuller description of the crucifixion, whereas John focuses on certain other particular details. So whereas we expect a historical account to give as many details as possible, which is a modern assumption, and well, frankly, even then, historians still have to choose what details to include or exclude. You can't include them all. Uh, ancient historians were more selective in their details in order to highlight the meaning of what was happening. And that was not unusual. That John did not include the detail about Simon carrying the cross does not take away from the historical accuracy of his account at all. It simply means he was highlighting something important. Now, as an aside, the reason Simon was forced to carry Jesus' cross part of the way to Golgotha was because as a matter of public spectacle, it would not do for a man to die before he was crucified. It would be anticlimactic. It'd be a letdown for Jesus to die on the road before he could be fully humiliated. So Jesus had already been brutally beaten, and that someone needed to help him indicates how bad that beating was, but the Jewish leadership wanted him to endure the public shame and humiliation of the cross itself. They wanted him on display for all of Jerusalem to see him as a disobedient son and failed Messiah. That John's focus was on Jesus bearing his own cross, I think was intended to make a link to another promised son, Isaac, who carried the wood on his back for his would-be sacrifice on the exact same mountain. That's all found in Genesis 22. After that famous scene where Abraham nearly sacrifices his son Isaac, Abraham names the place the Lord will provide. And Moses in Genesis 22 makes the comment that it was said of that place, even in Moses' day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The reason Abraham calls it that is because God himself, instead of requiring Isaac to bear the sin of his people in that sacrifice, God provided the sacrifice that would atone for Abraham and his people. You see, God knows uh, better than we do that if we were to bear the cost of our sin, we would surely die, and God wants life for his people with him. Now, Mount Moriah is only mentioned one more time in the Old Testament outside of Genesis 22, and it's in 2 Chronicles 3.1. It's the place where Solomon builds the temple in Jerusalem. So think about that now. In Genesis 22, Abraham was led by God to this very spot, which would become the future site of the temple in Jerusalem, built by Solomon, set apart by God, to sacrifice his promised miraculous son, whom he deeply loved. And in that moment with Abraham, God provided a better sacrifice that would spare the life of his people. And it was forward-looking. Here in John 19, we see that Jesus is a better Isaac. He is the beloved, only begotten son of the Father, carrying the wood of his sacrifice on Moriah, in which he will give his life for us and our salvation. Remember from weeks past that, that John wants us 
to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover. That's why he mentions what he does about Jesus uh, being declared king by Pilate. Remember, behold, Israel, your king. And this is at basically the noon hour on the day of preparation when uh, the lambs would start to be sacrificed. And that's important. But he also wants us to see that he is the fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham too. Well, we also read in verse 17 that Jesus was crucified at Golgotha. And this is significant for at least two reasons. First, this is a public event even as it is just outside of the city. Now remember, crucifixion was considered heinous and shameful even to the Romans, but from Jewish perspective, it was far worse. To the Jews, crucifixion defiled the city. It's why it was done outside the city walls. But even so, it was in a very public spot that got a lot of foot traffic. It would be like making the on-ramp from the interstate uh, the place for public executions in Greenville. So even as Jesus was the Passover lamb, sacrificed for our atonement, he's also very much like the scapegoat of Leviticus, sent outside the camp, outside the city, into the wilderness, carrying the sins of the people, removing their defilement. So this is not mere symbolism. He's not merely hearkening back. No, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover in the Levitical system. The Levitical sacrificial system was, was sacramental, in fact, in that it looked forward to and found its completion in what Jesus was doing in these moments. It's why his death and resurrection not only was the end of the sacrificial system, making it obsolete, it did that for the temple too. See, everything that God set up for his people after the Exodus, the exact prescribed way of worshiping him in the tabernacle and later in the temple, purposely look forward to Jesus and these moments. And with his death and resurrection, that system, that temple, no longer means anything. Now it's all found in Christ himself. Now, there's another reason that it's significant that Jesus was crucified at Golgotha, the place of the skull, as it was called. James Jordan rightly argues that Golgotha is the contraction of Goliath Gath, that is, Goliath of Gath. And over the course of a millennia or so, that Goliath of Gath got shortened down to Golgotha. It's like how growing up in Chattanooga, I only ever heard it pronounced as Chattanooga, that is, not like how Yankees pronounce it with a hard T with a Chattanooga, but the T is kind of like a soft D, Chattanooga. But over the 24 years since I've lived there, the pronunciation has changed. Now I routinely hear locals pronounce it Chattanooga. Chattanooga. It's, it's very strange to my hearing. So the place name has evolved even over the last 20 years. Well, that's what happened with the name Goliath Gath II to Golgotha. Now, Golgotha gets its name according to 1 Samuel 17, verse 54, because this is the place where David brought Goliath's skull after he killed him. Now, remember, 
David first took Goliath down with his slingshot and then took Goliath's sword and cut off his head. David, in turn, took Goliath's head as a trophy, as a testament to God conquering. And he displayed it outside the city walls of Jerusalem. So the place of the skull is the place of Goliath's skull. And, of course, Goliath was not merely a giant, as if there's such a thing as merely a giant. He, he wasn't merely, you know, a small percent of the population that was uniquely gifted for the NBA. No, he was a descendant of the Nephilim of Genesis 6, a race of giants far larger than anyone we might think of as a giant, who were an abomination to the Lord because they were a false lineage attributed to the serpent of Genesis 3. So Golgotha, even as it was a place of shame because of its usage for crucifixions, was also the place where it was remembered that God conquered the serpent and his proxy, Goliath, by way of God's chosen son and king, David. This is not a coincidence. We are meant to see that the promised son of Eve, the promised son of David, in his crucifixion, was crushing the head of the son of the serpent, Goliath. It's critical to see that the way Jesus conquered his enemies was not in a um, fight fire with fire sort of way. That's how people wanted him to fight. But as he says, no, his kingdom is not like that. His kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. No, God conquered his enemies by dying to them. Satan's head was crushed by the Son of Man in his crucifixion. So to look at the cross this way is, is foolishness to the world and a stumbling block to the Jews. But this is the moment. This is the moment when Jesus conquered. This is the moment when Jesus was enthroned as king. So from verses 14 to 17, John wants you to see more than a crucified man. He wants you to see the promised son of Eve, the promised son of Abraham, the promised son of David, fulfilling the Passover, the Day of Atonement, as he crushes the head of the serpent. Well, with verse 18, John, in, say, contrast to Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, gives virtually no detail about Jesus' actual crucifixion. Really, none of the gospel writers say a word about the horror of it all, and I don't think they needed to, because as horrific as it was, the physical torture was not the chief focus. Luke 23, for example, doesn't focus on the physical pain, which again was horrific, but was not something that Jesus uniquely endured. Lots of people endured that pain. No, the focus is on the spiritual warfare happening in the midst of that physical torture. Case in point, Jesus was mocked while on the cross by the Jewish leadership. He could save others, but he can't save himself. If you really are the Christ, the Son of God, then come off that cross. How about it, man? You're the chosen one. Why don't you show us? And the Roman soldiers mocked him too. If you are the king of the Jews, the king of the Jews. Come on, man save yourself. Satan's 
onslaught against Jesus, like what you see in his temptation in the wilderness and again in the Garden of Gethsemane, was to tempt him like he tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, but perhaps even more so like he tempted Job in his misery to break faith with God the Father in the midst of his worst physical moment. This is how it so often happens with us too. It's in our worst moments, whether physical pain or emotional trauma, that we are most tempted to believe the lie that God is neither with us nor actually cares for us. Of course, we are also tempted in our best moments too. I think Denzel Washington was right when he told Will Smith that it's in your highest moments, your most triumphant moments, when you think you're on top of the world, and again, just think of Job before he suffered, that the devil comes for you. Jesus does not lose the battle, though. Unlike every other human, he does not break faith. No, instead, as Luke records, Jesus prayed for his enemies and those who persecuted him. That's how Satan was conquered. This is how sin and death were undone. It wasn't through violence or an army. It was through keeping faith with the Father. And only Jesus could do that. We read in verses 19 and 20 that Pilate has the words, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, written in Latin, Greek, and Aramaic, and nailed above his cross for everyone to read as they pass by. And it is a remarkable moment, akin to Caiaphas' prophecy, where, if you will remember, Caiaphas said, it's better for one man to die for the people instead of the whole nation dying. You know, he, he was exactly right, but not for the reasons he thought. Well, here, Pilate has proclaimed the reality about Jesus. He is the king of the Jews, but was Pilate being sincere? Was he, he, was he really thinking that? Is that really his position? Probably not, but we don't know for sure. After all, he was rattled by Jesus and didn't know what to do with him, and he certainly thought he was innocent of all charges. But more than likely, this was Pilate's way of getting back at the Jewish leadership for their political maneuvering that had forced him to do their dirty work. This is, however, the gospel, according to Pilate. And, and he's announced, whether he realizes it or not, he's announced to the world that Jesus has been enthroned, that Jesus is king. The inscription is written in three languages. The official legal language of the Roman Empire, which was Latin. Then the local common dialect of Aramaic, of the Jewish people. And then what would have been at the time the lingua franca, you know, the, the language that people used all over the place, kind of like how English functions all over the world. Uh, this would have been Greek. It would have been Greek. And Pilate wanted to make sure everyone, and Jerusalem at Passover typically had people from all over the known world there. And that, that happened, of course, at, at Pentecost, too. He wanted to make sure everyone knew they could read in their own language, Jesus was king. So Rome's official governor of Judea, representing Rome itself, declared Israel's king to the world. 
And as far as I can tell, this is the very first official and legal announcement that Jesus had ascended to the throne and Israel's leadership was having none of it. In verses 21 and 22, the Jewish leadership don't react well to Pilate's inscription. They wanted him to write, this man said, I am king of the Jews. And that's a very different thing. And it would mean that Rome saw Jesus as a failed king and no better than the men who were crucified next to him. If you'll remember, uh, typically if you're being put on a cross, it's because you were a traitor or a runaway slave or you are an insurrectionist trying to have a, overthrow Rome or have a coup or something like that. That's what Barabbas was. And presumably these two men who were known as by the crime of being a Lestis, which was an insurrectionist, that's what they were doing too. But what's interesting here is that the Jewish leadership representing Israel had already broken the covenant with God by declaring they have no king but Caesar, which is just crazy. It's crazy that they said that. And it was not enough that Jesus was crucified. There could be no hint of the truthfulness of his claim to be the son of God and king. But Pilate, for whatever reason, refused to change his mind, and he doubles down on his inscription, letting it serve as an official declaration. He says, what I have written, I have written. So despite everyone's sinful intentions in this moment, whether it's Pilate trying to get back at the, the Jewish leadership or the Jewish leadership trying to get rid of a, a rival to their authority or whatever it may be, in the midst of all this human sin, Jesus was enthroned as king, and on the throne of that cross, he redeemed the world. One of the things I love about having young children in, in worship is that they are a good and sometimes visceral reminder that nobody is in control of anything. So, you know, once a kid gets upset or gets agitated, good luck with that. Good luck trying to control a blowout diaper. Good luck on shushing him or trying to get him to sit still. It's, children show us that control is an illusion. And that's fitting for this moment too. As John was witnessing all these moments, he had no idea what was happening. He had no idea of the significance. He wasn't watching all this stuff, parsing all this stuff and making connections with the promise made to Eve or Isaac on Moriah or the Passover or any of the things I've brought out about this text. He wasn't watching Jesus bear his cross and thinking, huh, there goes Isaac on his way to Moriah. Well, look, there's Jesus on Golgotha crushing the head of the serpent. No, he, he was most likely bewildered and in shock because everything from his perspective was falling apart in traumatic fashion. And he knew he was not in control. And it looked like God wasn't either. But looking back after the fact, through the work of the Spirit, he saw it. It all clicked in the beauty and wonder of God's love borne out through his patient sovereignty and the directing of history. It must have been mind-blowing to him. But in the moment, watching Jesus endure all of this, I don't think he could see it. 
No, in the moment, he was like us, struggling to get control, looking for meaning, grasping at reasons and not finding them, trying to make sense of it all and wondering where God was in all of it. You know, it's like with Job. Job never, in this life, learned why he endured such pain and loss. But I think in time, Job, like how John came to see these events, and like how Joseph could say after all he endured in Egypt throughout his life, that God was directing the course of history despite how painful it might be, and he was doing it for our good. Now, does that mean in the midst of a tragedy or trauma, we need to slap a fake smile on and say, hooray for God's sovereignty? No, not at all. I mean, what did Jesus do when he learned that his friend Lazarus had died, knowing that he was going to resurrect him? He wept. He wept. That's very instructive. No, we, we don't slap a fake smile on a hard situation. I mean, watching Jesus on the cross, John did not turn to Mary, his mother, and say, Hey, girl. The sun will come out tomorrow. Turn that frown upside down. God's got this. No. No, like with Job, like with Joseph and John and Mary, it means we wait on God to restore our hope and to give us meaning and understanding. And he must do it. And he will do it. You know, I love how Revelation 21 speaks of Jesus wiping away every tear and how death, mourning, crying, and pain will be no more. Who wipes away our tears? It's Jesus. You do not have to fix yourself because you cannot. And I'm convinced that in the life to come, He will show us how He was with us, leading us through the valley of the shadow of death, how He was preparing a table for us in the presence of our enemies and how he worked everything together for our good because of his great love for us. This, of course, is, again, it's foolishness to the world. But to those who are being saved by Jesus, it is the gift of God and it's what gives real and meaningful hope, especially when the illusion of control is taken away from us. So the one who orchestrated Israel's history, culminating in the death and resurrection of his son, will show us the meaning of our suffering, the meaning of our lives, how he used us to further his kingdom, and he will show us how he has always been the author of our lives and how there was never a moment he wasn't with us. He will wipe away every tear and death and mourning will touch us no more. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are with us and we know that. I know many of us here right now are struggling with much. I know many of us here are struggling with silent things and just hard things. So Lord, I pray for us that you would comfort us and your son, that we would be able to look back to his crucifixion and see how much you love us, how much you have endured with us, patiently walk, walking with us, 
showing us the way we should go and that you have life for us. Thank you for this grace and this mercy. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.